May I say a very warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Andy Woodliffe. I'm a pastoral assistant here at St. Mary's. Uh, could I ask you to keep your Bibles open at John chapter 17? That is the text for our sermon today, and that can be found on page 1077. Uh, in addition, if, if you're the kind of person who finds a sermon outline helpful to write on or to follow what's being said, then if you turn to the inside of your service bulletin, you'll find an outline there. And I do hope that that will be useful to you. Okay, in which case, uh, let me start with prayer and ask God for his help as we study his word. Let us pray. A loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel of your Son that is written for us here in the apostolic word. We pray now that as we hear you speak to us, that you would enliven our hearts for a greater faith in Christ, that we might know and love him all the more and live our lives to the praise of his glory. And we ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, as we have just prayed now, this passage before us in John 17 is also a prayer. It is a prayer of our Lord. He is praying to his Father. And as we saw last week in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. And then following that, he prays for his disciples, his apostles. And now in verses 20 to 26, Jesus is praying for us. He is praying for us who believe in him. And so this passage is immediately relevant to us. It's rather like overhearing a conversation in which we are the subject. We are inclined to listen and to hear. And so now as we engage with this text, let us pay very close attention to what Jesus our Lord asks his Father for us. However, before we examine each of these petitions, I think we need to take a step back and consider again what is the broad thrust of John's gospel. What is it that John is really trying to say? And I think there are three things that we really need to understand if we are to understand this passage. First, John tells us that this world is a world that is in darkness. It is a world that is the domain of Satan. It is a world that is under the curse of death. It is a world in which each one of us are facing the condemnation of God's eternal judgment in hell. Second, John tells us that into this world, God has come on a mission. God has come to bring eternal life to this world. That is the work that he is accomplishing. And third, that as John reveals to us this work of God, this work of salvation, as he unveils it before our eyes, he reveals it to us as the work of a God who is Trinity. The work of our God, the work of salvation, is that of a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, we, we have seen that from all eternity, the Father has promised His Son a people if He would lay down His life for them and redeem them from the curse of sin and death. 
The Father then sent this Son into the world to take on our flesh and to equip him for that task of salvation. He gave to him the person of his Holy Spirit. This Son who was sent by the Father and who received the Spirit and was made man, then offered up his life for us on the cross as payment for our sin. And this same Son, as he rose victoriously from the dead, as he ascended into heaven, from there bestowed with his Father that same Spirit to us, that we, being united to him by that Spirit, might be raised with him to eternal glory. This is the big idea. This is what our God is up to in this world. And now in John chapter 17, we are at the climactic point. Jesus, just about to go to his cross, regards the work that he is sent to do, that he was sent to have done as being a completed work. He looks as if the cross has already been accomplished, and now he turns to his father and says, Father, I have come, I have done the work that you promised, uh, that, I, that you have committed me to do, and now, Father, all that you have promised me, grant to me. I have laid down my life. Give to me the people that are my reward. Give them to me that they may see me in my glory. And that is exactly what we see in the beginning of the prayer and at the end. Have a look at verse 4. Jesus prays this. I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, give me the glory that is my due on the basis of my completed work, on the basis of my cross. And verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, give to me the people whom I have earned by my death, the people you have promised me, that they may see my glory and that I may be eternally glorified in them. And so for us, this prayer of Jesus, it, it should be reassuring. It should be a great comfort to us. Do we ever get anxious? Do we ever worry that, that we may not reach heaven? Do we ever think that the Father may not quite be pleased with us? Do we ever think that when it comes to our death, our destiny is not quite secure? Do we ever believe that actually we haven't really merited heaven? Well, here we see that perfect assurance that we have, that we shall see the Lord in glory, that he shall raise us up and we shall be with him for eternity. And it is not on the basis of our merit, but it is on the basis of Christ's merit. This is his completed work. He has finished all that the Father has given him. The Father has promised him us as his people. 
And because the Son is eternally worthy of His church, He is guaranteed to receive us as the reward of His great work on the cross. Our salvation is secure, and it is secure because Christ is worthy of that glory. Also now, having, having seen the, the big picture of John and, and the big picture of this prayer, let us have a look now at the verses themselves to see what it is that Jesus asks from the Father. Have a look down with me at verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That that is us. And what does Jesus pray? Verse 21, he prays that they may all be one. Jesus prays that we would be one united people. Now, what is that unity? Well, I don't think it is an an institutional unity. It is not an an organizational unity, but here it is a, a spiritual unity. And we can see that because Jesus directly relates it to the unity between the Father and the Son. Have a look again at verse 21. I pray, he says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You see, we know that from all eternity, the Father and the Son, as one God in the unity of the Holy Spirit, have been perfectly one. And the Son, in His mission to this world, as He is sent by the Father, was given the Spirit that even in His work, He was perfectly one with His Father. And now the Son asks that for us as His people, those to whom He has given life, that we also may be one with Him in that Spirit and one with His Father, and through that spiritual unity, one with one another. Because if you are united to Christ and the Father through the Spirit, and I am united to Christ and the Father through the Spirit, then you and I are united one to another. Now, that truth has implications. I think it has pretty serious implications for us. The first is that the unity we have in this church, it is an objective reality. It's, it's not something that, you know, Jesus, when he's praying here, he's not praying like we pray when we're sometimes praying optimistically for things that we hope eventually will happen. He's not praying for good weather tomorrow. He's not praying for his sports team to win the cup. He's not praying that eventually Brexit would happen. He's praying on the basis of his cross with the full certainty that he's earned everything that is his due. And so we know here that the unity for which he prays is something that will certainly be given to him and his church. We are one because that is something that Christ has achieved. And therefore, two 
because of that, unity amongst us and amongst the wider church is not something that we have to strive to achieve. Rather, it is something that we should strive to exhibit. You see, unity is not attained by us, but it is displayed by us. It is not something that we have to work towards, but it's something we have to work to show. And I think there are two important ways that that spiritual unity among us is seen. And the first is that we have unity in the apostolic testimony. Have a look again at verse 20. How are we referred to? Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is, we are not believers in the Jesus of Islam. We're not believers in the Jesus of Mormonism. We're not believers in the liberal Jesus who's completely okay with all manner of sin. We're not believers in the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, we are believers in the Jesus whom John, Matthew, Paul proclaimed. We have unity together with that Jesus. And so for those who step outside of that witness, well, they are united to, to a different Jesus, not to our Jesus. So our unity together has got a doctrinal boundary. We believe and are united to the Jesus that the Bible proclaims. And secondly, this unity that we have together is a unity that is displayed in love. And if we've been paying attention in the last couple of chapters, that should be obvious. Because Jesus has kept telling his disciples that as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I mean, how is it that we will see the work of the Spirit in this church? We cannot see the Spirit, but we can see a body of believers who, through the power of the Spirit, love one another. And so, therefore, let us be extra careful to heed the, the, the words of the Apostle Paul, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, be especially diligent not to, not to destroy the unity of the church, not to damage or to cause divisions in any way. Don't let your petty jealousies or rivalries cause dissension within the church. If you feel that you have been grieved against, try to be reconciled as much as you can with your brothers and sisters. Try to show forgiveness and grace to them. For the unity that we have, the unity in love, is an important way that we demonstrate what Christ has achieved. Be especially diligent, therefore, that you do not break or cause others to break that unity. Well, that is the, the first major point that I have. Well, now I, I want to, to tell you a little bit about myself uh, to help you understand the next part of the passage. 
In my home, uh, one of the things I like to do, I'm quite an odd man, one of the things I like to do is I, I like to clean the dishes. Now, if you were to ask me in my home, Andy, why do you like to clean the dishes? I could give you several different answers. But the answers might go something like this. I like to clean the dishes because I want clean plates. Obvious answer. Now, I want clean plates because dirty plates displease my wife. And I want to avoid displeasing my wife because I'm quite a wise man. So therefore, if you were to ask me, Andy, why do you clean your plates? Well, the immediate purpose is, I, well, I want clean plates. But actually, the, the ultimate purpose that I'm seeking is to avoid displeasing my wife. Now, in the same way here, we, we actually know that the unity of the church is an ultimate end. It's an end that's going to exist for all eternity. The Son is going to be glorified in us. But here in this passage, Jesus is careful to point out that the unity that we have also serves another purpose. Have a look down uh, with me at verses 20, 21 again. Verse 21. I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That the world may believe that you have sent me. And he carries on. Again, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That is, the unity that we have together as God's people, the unity that Christ has achieved, is part of the proclamation, the, the declaration of Christ's victory that God is making to this world. So, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, we've seen, first of all, that, that this unity that we have in the Spirit is a unity that is displayed in love. And Jesus has told us that the way in which the world will know that we are His disciples is that we love one another. By that shall all the world know that we are Jesus' disciples. And we've got to think about that just for a second. Look, I mean, look at me. I am Matt Saleh. Chinese. There are Indians here. Africans. Sarawakians. Uh, people from all across the world. People who are from different backgrounds. People who work in different jobs. People who've had different levels of education. People who've got different personalities. But we are all one in Christ. Christ has achieved something that the United Nations will never achieve. Here we are as one people united in love. That is a powerful proclamation and witness to this world. I mean, if people come in here, what are they going to think? How on earth has this happened? But actually, really, they ought to be thinking... How in heaven 
has this happened? Where has this come from? The unity we have, brothers and sisters, the unity in Christ, the unity displayed in love, is a unity that bears witness that the Father has sent his Son. And secondly, as we are united in the apostolic witness, united in the apostolic Christ, if we have paid attention to John so far, we would have seen that there is a progression, that the Father sent his Son and gave him his Spirit for the work of mission, that the Son then sent the Spirit to his apostles, that they too might proclaim him in this world of darkness. The apostles proclaimed him through their word and through the apostolic testimony of the scriptures. And we who have received that testimony believe in that Christ and are united to that Christ, united together with the apostles in the spirit to the Father and the Son. And we too now, who also have the spirit, are also sent out with a word to this world that is in darkness. We are a people who have been sent with a message to this world, a message that says that God is coming to judge the earth, but that salvation is found in the Son whom he has sent. In the beginning, I said to you that God is on a mission in this world of darkness. But we also now who believe in him, who have been given his spirit, who are united in that spirit, are also sent forth in mission. We must proclaim to all of the world in our words, in our unity and love, the glory of the cross of Christ, the worthiness that he has to be proclaimed among all the nations. And we do it that together we might enjoy his glory forever and ever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness and in sin and facing your judgment. We thank you that you sent forth your Son into this world and gave him your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he offered himself up to death on a cross for us, and through his death and resurrection, and through the giving of the Holy Spirit, you have caused us to be born again, that we are united to him, and that we are alive in him. Thank you that we will see him in his eternal glory. And Father, we pray now that you would unite us together in the bonds of love through the power of the Spirit, and you would also cause us to be motivated to proclaim his word to a world that is in darkness, that more and more people may come to know the glory of your Son. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen.